This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, this is David Rutledge and we are in the Philosopher's Zone once again. Welcome to the program and part two of a discussion about de-extinction. If you missed part one, then check the Philosopher's Zone website or the ABC Listen app for last week's episode. De-extinction, as the name implies, is the process of bringing extinct animals back into existence. In the popular imagination, de-extinction is heavily influenced by Jurassic Park and that old monster movie cliche of scientists meddling with forces beyond their control and accidentally unleashing catastrophe upon the world. In the case of Jurassic Park, bringing back vicious dinosaurs that, against all expectations, get out of their enclosure and try to eat everyone. Well, the reality of de-extinction is more and less mundane than Jurassic Park. As we heard last week, there's next to no chance of actually being able to resurrect a dinosaur. But when we look at the rather more humble animals that de-extinctionists are working to bring back, the science is, is just amazing. This is the journalist and cell biologist Helen Pilcher talking on Radio National's Sunday Extra program a little while back. What there is, is a number of very respectable scientists uh, in different laboratories around the world working to de-extinct various different animals. And these are respectable scientists doing decent research, slowly, patiently gathering the knowledge that we need to make this happen. So there's a project in the US to bring back the passenger pigeon, which was a bird that used to fill the skies in flocks that numbered in the billions. And we have hundreds and hundreds of these birds in museums. And you can go into the cells of these museum birds and you can retrieve the DNA. You can sequence that DNA and you can look for that genetic diversity. And then what scientists envisage doing in the future is using genome editing techniques to edit that diversity back into the birds that they produce. So they don't think that a lack of genetic diversity will necessarily be a problem. Indeed, it's something they're thinking about really carefully. De-extinction has all sorts of potential environmental benefits. Last week we heard that if we were able to bring back woolly mammoths and reintroduce them to their ancestral territories up there in the icy tundra regions, their grazing habits could help to mitigate the effects of climate change on the permafrost. And that's just one example. We're about to hear more. But we're also about to hear that de-extinction brings complex ethical and psychological issues into play that might actually work against the conservation of existing species. And then there are fascinating philosophical questions around the identity and the authenticity of resurrected species. So we're going to be hearing once again from Christopher Lane, who's a research fellow in the Biosciences Group at the University of Sydney, and he's talking with Kate Lynch, lecturer in the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Melbourne. And this program was produced in collaboration with the Australasian Association of Philosophy. I think that any picture of conservation must prioritise living species. Now, if you like the framework of moral duties, that these species, uh, that species have some sort of moral obligation to them, it's clear that living species have a much stronger claim to any sort of moral obligation. You know, the individuals are living, you know, they have ongoing well-being, they have interests. So if you like that sort of language, you know, it's clear that we should, you know, stop the ways in which we're impeding their welfare and interests. But I tend to think of conservation in terms of preserving biodiversity. 
you know, people directly value biodiversity as there's this uh, aesthetic beauty of living in a world with diverse and unique organisms. Uh, biodiverse ecosystems are more resilient to human changes. A uh, recent study published this year appears to confirm that more biodiverse systems lead to less extinction within those ecosystems. So biodiversity begets biodiversity. You are able to maintain systems by having them be much richer and have more different species. And as well, biodiversity is something that's prudentially wise to preserve. You know, we don't know all the ways that we're going to value species in the future. You know, these could be material reasons. You know, people often talk about discovering the next great antibiotic or something like that. But much more human is the fact that we don't know how we're going to value those species in the future. We don't know which ones are going to have cultural significance. We don't know the ones which we're going to some way build our identity around as people within a local area. Different species could become important in the future, so we should preserve more and more of them. So the loss of each species is a loss of information. It's a loss of all the knowledge that can be gained from them about life on Earth and it's a loss of heritage just in the same way as tearing down the ruins of the Colosseum in Rome would be. You know, it has this deep heritage value about the history of that place and the history of life on Earth. De-extinction can never really rectify what is lost as we're recreating these species from fragments and best guesses. It's like rebuilding on those destroyed ruins. It's always going to be approximation of the species lost, given our best abilities at the time. Okay, then. So would you think that the resources currently being spent on de-extinction then should be instead directed towards saving currently existing species? I think conservation needs to prioritise current species. Australia has the highest mammal extinction rate in the world. Over the last 500 years, over a third of the world's mammal extinctions were recorded in Australia. And since colonisation, 29 species of mammals have gone extinct. And the largest impacts on these are land clearing and invasive species. And these impacts are ongoing. Uh, we still have the highest land clearing rate of any developed nation. We have an immense population of invasive species. And iconic species like koalas are threatened by this land clearing rate. And numerous small marsupials are threatened by invasive predators. Removing invasive predators and preventing land clearing are a fraction of the cost of engaging in de-extinction and are much more effective than, say, allowing the koala to go extinct, taking lots of DNA samples and then attempting to genetically engineer a wombat into a koala. Just save the koala. <laughs> you know, that's going to be a much more effective way. And there's a real fear in the conservation community that de-extinction distracts from the most effective and important conservation methods. Gaining media attention and funding that should go to the conservation of endangered species. So a 2017 study by uh, Joseph Bennett and some other biologists did some number crunching. And they found that for the cost of de-extinction projects on 11... Uh, extinct New Zealand species that are of interest. You know, these projects aren't already going, you know, they are ones under consideration. 
But for these 11 projects and their cost, you could actually preserve 31 endangered species. And for the cost of attempting to resurrect the five species of interest in New South Wales, you could save 42 different species that are currently endangered. So there's this huge sort of uh, disparity in payoff, you know, for resurrecting species versus saving them. Now, I think that this explains the trepidation of conservationists to de-extinction, but there is an issue here. The money that's going into de-extinction is generally not directly competing for conservation funding. The $5 million that went into thylacine de-extinction did not come from the government. It came from uh, this large biotech and de-extinction company called Colossal, the same one that's behind the mammoth de-extinction. There is no way that money was going into conventional conservation. Much of the investments in de-extinction are into applied science research coming from private investors, enamored with the flashy nature of these projects and, you know, the public impact that they can make. I think that the idea that these are a zero-sum game between conservation and between de-extinction has at times been overstated. You know, these two things can sort of live side by side. So de-extension then is this sort of showy, expensive form of conservation. Philosopher Ronald Sandler describes it as luxury conservation. One could call it caviar conservation. It's the production of an organism of high public interest, yielding high prices for their viewing, yielding high prices for conservation experiences built around them for an extremely high price of producing this particular species or individuals. So while de-extinction can't sustain conservation, it doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be part of the picture. You mentioned earlier that when people are thinking about bringing back or resurrecting an extinct species, they're taking fragments and taking information from many different individuals. So they're introducing variation from lots of different individuals to create a single individual from an extinct species. Because there's this chopping up of genes and combining of genetic information that's possible, could scientists similarly introduce new genes that have never been part of that species before? Yeah, they can. And here I think is one of the interesting things that hasn't been talked about enough in this space. It's that these techniques for de-extinction really are going to help optimise and allow for rapid research which allows for the insertion of genes from all around life into populations of conservation interest. So instead of using these techniques to attempt to resurrect a lost species, they could be used to preserve endangered species. So targeted changes to the genome of living species can help them overcome otherwise insurmountable problems. Uh, these include things like uh, there's a lot of research being done into genetically modifying coral to make it resistant to climate change. So one proposal is to introduce heat shock proteins to prevent the coral from bleaching in the face of much warmer uh, temperatures within the sea. So there you actually have a gene which isn't originally found in any coral population. Uh, you're taking it from somewhere else and then you're going to introduce it into the coral to allow it to survive. 
But as well, de-extinction techniques can be used effectively within a species. So intraspecies de-extinction uh, or just using the same techniques to spread a feature around. So, for example, Tasmanian devils suffer from contagious cancer, which horrifically infects their face, causing them to die. And there's one population which is resistant to this particular uh, tumour. Instead of slowly crossbreeding the population, you could sequence that bit of DNA and then rapidly introduce it without having to do slow and laborious uh, crossbreeding programs. Now, these sort of programs were likely going to be much more effective in terms of preserving a population than doing a very slow process of introducing DNA over and over to create some sort of de-extinct population. So in terms of conservation utility, I see the use of these techniques as being much more effective being directed towards the preservation of currently endangered populations rather than trying to bring back some sort of new population. Well, that does certainly sound like a fascinating approach to some of these very big problems that are currently facing conservationists. But I can't help but think there's something just a little bit uncomfortable about introducing new genes into a species, right? Genetically engineering or playing God with some species we've already got out there in the wild. So in your, your case of the coral, you know, would a genetically modified coral, would it really still be that coral? Would you still consider these species authentic in a sense? Yeah, many people feel discomfort with this. And I think that's uh, very fair. And it's something we really need to consider. There's always going to be questions around authenticity and identity. You know, we as humans are actively changing these species. For example, with the Dunart being genetically modified through introducing thylacine DNA, in my view, this would comprise a human-induced speciation event, creating this uh, predominantly thylacine but Dunart thylacine hybrid. And we may end up having to hybridize it with multiple populations or more make a chimera where we're introducing genes from multiple populations to be able to allow this new thylacine species to have the genetic diversity to allow it to survive. In the case of genetically modifying coral, most of the coral genes will be the same, but we are introducing changes that just wouldn't be possible without human intervention. And this aspect of changing the world in a way that just wouldn't be possible without humans often leads to worries about playing God. And human intervention is often associated with the idea that these species are in some way inauthentic. And why are they inauthentic? It's because they're the products of human action rather than the products of nature itself. Authenticity is associated with being separate from human interaction and uh, human intervention. And the authenticity of natural spaces is a major worry for environmental ethics. Okay, so why is authenticity so important for environmental ethics? Well, many environmental ethicists worry about preserving authenticity uh, because they're worried about preserving wilderness. And wilderness are spaces which are authentic because they're spaces which are separate from humanity with very little imprint of human design. The thought is that wilderness has a unique value in the world as we increasingly live in this world of human design and human decision-making. In contrast, nature designs itself. It's this 
autonomous uh, creator of design through the actions of natural selection of geologic forces like erosion and plate tectonics. There's something tremendous, slow and powerful about nature's design and its design without a designer. Uh, some may contest that, but uh, this provides a unique psychological experience of the world. We can immerse ourselves in this powerful, at times dangerous place of immense beauty and complexity, which is separate from human design. And this allows us to have various psychological effects many people feel. You know, it allows us to remove ourselves from our sort of human social brain way of thinking about the world. It allows us to experience design which isn't from another human. And in doing so, it gives us a sense of peace or a connection to something that is bigger than us. So once we start designing nature, this autonomy is in some way undermined. And then the thought is that this unique experience of nature is in some way lost. We end up seeing these spaces as curated just in the same way as we see the spaces that humans inhabit as being curated. This is The Philosopher's Zone, and you're listening to Christopher Lane, research fellow in the Biosciences Group at the University of Sydney. He's in conversation with Kate Lynch from the University of Melbourne. They're talking about de-extinction. This is the second in a two-part series, and if you missed part one, you can catch it on the Philosopher's Zone website or the ABC Listen app. So when it comes to the realm of de-extinction then, should we accept that those species, if we are able to resurrect them, given that they are deeply influenced by humanity's choices and by our technology, would you say then that they're of no conservation value? I think that authenticity is significant, but these populations can have still immense value. I think that we should see authenticity as coming in degrees you know, possibly degrees of human effectiveness. The fact is that there is no space on Earth that is not affected by humans. Most populations come into direct contact with humans. Humans affect all the environments. Even the most isolated population around the world, you know, there's many quite isolated populations. Even those are affected by climate change. So the whole world is in some way affected by humanity. So the idea that there is this pristine, you know, completely authentic environment, I think is somewhat misguided. So authenticity, I see it as significant, but it's not a defeater of doing this stuff. In fact, a lot of these techniques I see as being able to preserve authenticity. So consider genetically modifying coral to allow it to survive climate change. All you're doing is you're changing one gene and then the rest of the coral is intact. So for the cost of changing one gene, maybe you diminish authenticity in that, but you are allowed then to have the experience of the rest of that species features. You know, all the features that have been produced by the long process of natural selection of them surviving in a particular space and time and of coral reefs. All these authentic features are preserved through making that particular change. 
So in that sense, I see these technologies as being able to preserve authenticity and allow future generations to experience more of the natural world that may have been otherwise if we at times don't use these techniques. But this is, of course, predicated on them otherwise sort of being eliminated by human actions. Right. So it sounds like there's perhaps still some degrees of authenticity that can be preserved using this technology, even if it's not perfectly a perfect authentic uh, species or organism. Yeah, exactly. There's something that you're bringing back and there's something of a unique experience of nature that you're getting. But I do think that these are reasons why we should be very conservative in the changes that we make and only do it when often the alternative is extinction or the loss of those unique features that otherwise would go. Okay, so what about the issue of complacency then? Because if there's technology becoming available that allows us to bring back extinct species, do you think that would undercut the public perception that extinction is permanent and something that we need to take very seriously? Yeah, so I think that this is probably the most difficult question for de-extinction. Many have argued that de-extinction is a moral hazard. And there's multiple ways to describe a moral hazard, but in this case, it's the fact that your good act of bringing back the species may convince others to act in lazy or immoral ways. So given that species can be brought back, then the worry is that many will have a more relaxed attitude towards extinction. The loss of the thylacine has been a major, major point of grief with a lot of people. It's an icon. It motivates conservation as we do it now. When we talk about a species going extinct currently, we look back at the extinction of the thylacine. So bringing back the thylacine could lead to people sort of putting aside that grief and thinking that future extinctions are not the issue that they are. But the fact is that even if you can bring back species through de-extinction, most of their features are going to be lost. And there's a real issue with just making a replica of something lost to sort of overcome your guilt. So there's a lot of talk about the use of AI And you can imagine someone losing a relative and then feeding all the utterances of that deceased relative into an AI and then continuing to have conversations with the AI rather than deal with the grief of actually losing that person. When we commit to de-extinction, it seems like we're doing something similar. We're creating this proxy to avoid the guilt of what's lost but it's always going to be imperfect and maybe we should actually live with that guilt and lead ourselves to do better moral acts after facing that guilt and living in a world where we have to just live with grief. So if de-extinction undercuts the motivation of conservation, it could be dangerous for conservation, the thought is. But the main question is will it actually do this? You know, this is a psychological question. I think that we need serious social science and psychology research into 
whether a de-extinction will have this particular negative psychological effect. You know, for all I know, it could be possible that de-extinction might motivate people's engagement with the environment. You know, it could draw people in with these charismatic and famous organisms and foster investment and make people realise how fragile life is because we've had these hugely expensive and complex projects to bring these species back and it brings them back in focus. You know, so really, I don't know about this psychological effect. I think that to establish it, it will take serious research, but it is something that we're going to have to be very mindful of and is possibly a real danger with de-extinction. Okay, so given what we do know, and based on your philosophical expertise on the topic, what would you like the future of conservation to look like, given these technologies? Well, I'm a bit torn, honestly. I think that it's really going to depend on things like the social science research, on what these impacts are, on the cost evaluations. So I guess my message would be of very cautious optimism. You know, I think that these technologies can be justified and can be useful, but I would like to see them predominantly used in much more sort of conservative and directed ways towards preserving endangered species rather than invested in these sort of large de-extinction projects. Because, you know, de-extinction techniques can be used to uh, introduce genetic variation into highly inbred populations. So within species de-extinction, I think is a, a great thing. Say we identify remains of Tassie devils, which have really unique genetic features. We could then de-extinct those Tassie devil variation into the population and make it much more healthy. Already we're using cloning to bring back deceased individuals to then introduce it into a population to make it more healthy. So bringing back variation within a species to preserve them, I see as being quite an effective technique. Bringing back fully extinct species, I think, has more risks associated. And these risks are along those sort of uh, moral hazard risks, uh, cost-effectiveness risks, and they're much more of uh, drastic changes to those particular species that you're modifying. But I do think that de-extinction, despite all these things, it could play a role. Um, it's really going to depend how things happen in the future, but it could play a role. There could be real positive ecosystem effects by bringing these species back. The discussion around mammoths, you know, if something even approximating those effects happens, you know, that would be incredible. And the fact is, when I sit back and think about whether I'd like to see a thylacine again, I can't help but say, yeah, I would. You know, it would be spectacular to see a thylacine again. You know, you watch those videos of back in the 1930s and it really does bring a tear to your eye to just see this thing that did exist and it would be fantastic to see again. But, you know, there's a little part of me that wonders whether this is all sort of wishful thinking and a little bit of immaturity. You know, should I not just like hold on to that grief of having lost this amazing species and then use it to motivate my conservation interests elsewhere and to make a better world in the ways that I can. 
Christopher Lane. He's a research fellow in the Biosciences Group at the University of Sydney. He was speaking there with Kate Lynch, who's a lecturer in the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Melbourne. This has been The Philosopher's Zone, and as I mentioned earlier, this was the second in a two-part series. You can find part one, as well as all of our other episodes, on The Philosopher's Zone website or the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. It's been great to have you along this week. Bye for now.